course, now working class people are very proud people. I mean, I come from the mining village um, and we want to work. We want to play hard, work hard, play hard. By God, we played hard as well, I'll tell you that. But, but uh, we worked hard, we want to work, we want to have some sort of Aristotelian role. You know, we want to, I'm, I'm firm Aristotelian, old fashioned. And that, that, that's the, the role and the social functions is what makes the person. And that that's your identity. And, uh, you know, we, we've, we've lost that to the extent now where we can simply think we can choose ourselves into being and we can imagine ourselves into being. That's not going to work. That's going to create this sort of madness that we're seeing now. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. We have the usual Alpha Bunga Bunga crew, myself, Alex Hochuli, George Hoare in London, and Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury. Ben Fogel is absent today. So we don't talk very much about crime on this podcast, uh, unless it's Ben making signs about drug trafficking gangs or making Goodfellas references. And as he's not here, we're not going to be having that today. But I think, to be honest, it seems that the left today doesn't talk very much about crime in general, other than maybe to denounce policing tactics or the criminalization of the poor. And we don't see much of much popular debate these days about criminology in general, what causes crime, how we should understand it, and, and so on. So today we're very pleased to uh, welcome Steve Hall, who's Emeritus Professor of Criminology, formerly of the universities of Teesside, Durham, and Northumbria. He's the architect with Simon Winlow of the framework known as ultra-realism in criminology, which we will find out about really shortly. And he's the author of various books and articles. You'll find some of these in the show notes below. Hi, Steve. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So to get started, let's, uh, a bit of a softball question. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to be a criminologist. What's your background? What's your history? What interests you in it? Well, like most of the... Um changes in my life, sort of stumbled into it. I was a, a former professional musician. Um, as a musician, you, you do get to know about certain aspects of the criminal market. <laughs> criminal I ended up working with young offenders in, in the northeast of England uh, in the 1980s during the, the deindustrial, the Thatcherite deindustrialization process, where criminal markets uh, were replacing um, normal labor markets in, in, in some places. And crime was arising, what Robert Reiner calls the crime explosion of the 1980s. It was a real explosion. It wasn't just a statistical um, or ideological um, uh, rise. It, it, it was, you know, it, it was a rise in, in, in real crime and some, and often real, quite harmful crime, the rise, the rise in violence, for instance. So I was working with young offenders in the 1980s, um, uh, teaching music, trying to get some of these young kids interested in, in music from, you know, swap them from one type of criminal activity to another. Um, and I had been to university in 1974 uh, for a while, dropped that because I, I, could, I was good at following chord progressions. <laughs> and I got lots of work as a musician. So, so I, I, you know, um, I couldn't refuse the, the um, regular money that was being put in front of my face so so I, I dropped out and around about 1988 I thought it was about time to go back to university and go back with a, a sort of wealth of life experience that that is uh, you know I don't want to be too critical but but sometimes missing in today's um, academics <laughs> some of them tend to <laughs> tend to <laughs> Um, you know, leave you uh, leave school at eighty and go to university, then go straight back to school and then to university again. Um, so I, I found that um, that life experience often jarred with some of the uh, material that I was being ex uh, exposed to um, during my undergraduate uh, degree. And ultra realism, in a sense, is a, a reaction to that. It's a, it, it's a um, called to um, return to what the speculative realists call the great outdoors, the world of real things and that real people doing real things, of course, within structural and 
heterosexual contexts. Um, and it, it's a, you know, it's a plea to, um, to begin from the beginning and to reject an awful lot of the conceptual frameworks that we've been carrying since the 1960s and 1970s. So I, I stumbled into it. Right. So, I mean, to unpack then what realism is, what ultra-realism would be then in relation to that, especially for those who aren't familiar with criminology and maybe aren't familiar with, with kind of different social scientific frameworks, uh, people who aren't familiar, yeah. who don't have the academic background, what, what does this actually mean? And how does ultra-realism contrast to that which you just referred to, that what came before it in the 1970s? Yeah. Well, the criminological canon is quite a, a, a complex one, um, but there were two basic positions, opposing positions, um, which uh, a dear friend of mine, Jock Young, um, came up with uh, left, re left idealism and left realism. Of course, we all know what philosophical idealism means, is that there's a world constructed by ideas and action informed by ideas. Whereas realism uh, looks at real events real processes and real structures which impinge on the individual and restrict the individual. Um, so there's a, a huge contrast there. Left idealism was dominant throughout the um, 60s and 70s. It took over from even older Durkheimian structure of functional ideas and subculture, etc. It became the norm in the 60s and 70s. And it was seen by many on the left to be failing. The reason for that was that right realism uh, coming out of America dominated all government discourse. Right realism, which you know tells everyone that crime is real, it's really harmful, and the only way to deal with criminals is to put them in prison and make sure that they're taken from the community. Well, <clears throat> so right realism was that was uh, being right realists were being listened to. James Q. Wilson, for instance, became the advisor mm. to Ronald. And he um, advised Reagan to expand the uh, prison infrastructure and, and to um, make sure that the police were on the ball. And he was writing about this in 1975. So it's incredibly cynical because they knew that when Nixon had left the gold standard and the Bre abandoned Bretton Woods, there was going to be serious trouble. So they were preparing for social unrest. So right realism is incredibly cynical. And it has nothing to say about the contextual conditions or the causes of crime. So left realism was a was a, 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 a sort of way of taking the ball back, you know, of, of, of tackling the midfielder and taking the ball back to the left and saying, well, look, we, we we're not that daft. We're not we're not really stupid like the, the left idealists. We do believe crime is really harmful. It's a real problem. So please listen to us. It was a rather desperate attempt to um, to, to to take back the ball. So left idealism. Um, became very popular in, in, in the 1980s. It, it filtered over to America, the likes of Walter de Kessaradi and Elliot Curry. Elliot, very good friend of mine. So, um, to, be, to be slightly crude about this, sorry, Steve, to interrupt, but uh, that kind of right realism, is that something that people would identify as a sort of maybe common sense notion that, you know, crime is bad and is a real danger and is caused by bad people behaving badly? I mean, would that be too crude yes, a way to put it? it? No, it, it's not too crude because right realism is quite a crude position. Um, so it's very difficult to, to, be, to, to be too crude when, you know, when you're trying to describe it. It is based upon the notion of the legend of the fall, you know, the idea that we're all wicked and we need discipline and we need guide, constant guidance. Um, and, and punishment is essential. So, you know, this is a, a, a standard conservative way of looking at things. It's not really like conservatism in the sense that um, they don't believe that the social bonds are important. They see things as highly individualized, like where simply the presence of punishment should deter the individual. So deterrence is the fundamental concept that right mm. realism is based upon. Um, and so that, that, that prevailed governments, uh, you know, throughout the 1980s, especially with Reagan and, and Thatcher. Left realism came around to try to take the ball back, uh, failed I think, because it still, um, it, it had no depth to it. It had no structural depth. It wasn't looking at underlying structures, processes, and certainly um, wasn't trying to create, a, a construct a more sophisticated notion of crime by looking at harm, or what we now call zemiology, the study of harm, which is, um, again, important to ultra-realists. So left realism, was, uh, I would think, was a failure. 
Um, so, I, I, so we, we, I, the realism is an attempt to to become more real uh, and to look at the world with all its you know with all its warts and all, uh, mm. uh, and try to reconstruct theor- theoretical frameworks from the ground up. So, Steve, hi, it's it's George here. Um, so, what would you, for our listeners, I guess, what, how would you um, characterize contemporary criminology to to kind of fast forward a little bit? What are the major problems with the current state of the of the discipline? Because um, it, it seems like in in some some of your writing, you have been uh, fairly critical. Um, so, what what's the basis of of this kind of I guess critical position that ultra realism takes up? Well, <clears throat> criminology these days is basically penology. It, it's, it, it's uh, you know, it's fundamentally prison studies. It's studies of the criminal justice system. I suppose, you know, be kind of a, little, a little more generous, we could call it criminal justice studies. So a study of everything that happens after the crime and after the criminal has been introduced into the system. It's based on a human rights perspective, humanitarian perspective, and I have absolutely no problem with that. It should be one one wing of the aircraft. The problem is it's both wings of the aircraft. So etiology, what happens before, what are the contexts, the conditions, the causes, what drives criminality in a subjective and a structural sense is is entirely omitted. When you pull um, uh, the penologists and criminal justice studies um, people about this, they'll say, well, we already know that, we take that for granted, but they don't. They don't. They don't look at it, they they don't teach it to students. Research programs based on these underlying conditions are very rarely funded. So there's a tight control of funding, tight control of the textbooks, and it's very, very difficult for any um, causative or etiological, which is science of causes, the etiological Mm -hmm. material to... to, to, um, to be published and get into the public eye so basically missing kind of political context missing missing a wider understanding of what of what goes on before crimes are committed yes. and yeah yes um, basically uh, completely omitting the, the the deeper and broader context in which crime takes place i just wanted to interject because um one thing that i got from reading um some of the ultra realist stuff uh, and I just wanted to check this with you, was that the acceptance of the idea that criminality, I suppose, that criminality is harmful and destructive and difficult in society. Um, and that seemed to me to cut against perhaps the way in which uh, the way in which the left might understand um criminality purely in terms of um, the, I suppose, penal populism, the idea that uh, harsher sentences and so on, harsher sentencing is demanded um, by the populace at large and that the state responds to these demands to punish criminals. And I I mean, is that right? Is is ultra-realism trying to accept the idea that criminality is, is genuinely a blight in those communities that suffer from it? Yes. It's trying to accept the idea that we should look into whether it's a blight or not. It's to actually do the research. We, 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 you know, from the research we've done so far, we see that some crime is extremely harm, harmful. Drug markets can cause extreme harm in, in, in communities, especially amongst young people, for instance. We all know, of course, feminist realism is one of our influences. There, you know, domestic violence is extremely harmful. Violent crime, of course, is harmful. We can't avoid this. The problem with the the, the, the left, or what, what I call the liberalised left, I don't think this is the traditional left at all, but the liberalised left that we've seen post-68, I know we're going to talk about that later, is that their discourse and their politics are driven by fear, and a fear that emerged after the Second World War, the fear of authority, this, of what authority could do. Now, this is understandable, given what Stalin actually did in the Gulags, the Second World War, the Holocaust, etc. So this terrible fear of authority is understandable. But you can't base an intellectual discipline on fear uh, because that cuts out an awful lot of causative conditions that need investigation. So this fear of authority has underpinned uh, the, the left liberal criminological dis- discourse since, since the Second World War. And we are doing, I suppose, something that, that, that's quite fundamental in trying to leave that behind, look beyond that, 
in, and look at, at the uh, underlying conditions and causes that, 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 that are associated with contemporary criminal activity. So stepping sideways for a moment, I suppose, from criminology directly, uh, some years back you wrote with um, some of your regular ultra-realist collaborators, you wrote a book called The Rise of the Right, which is a really gripping, detailed ethnographic study of um, working class members and associates of the English Defence League, which is a far right political grouping. It flared up, I suppose, uh, before the Brexit vote, but it seems to have disappeared or at least fallen off the radar a bit in across yeah. the across the last few years. So could you tell us a bit about the book, um, what you did and what the key findings of the research were? Yes, well, again, the book... Um, fits into the um, uh, ambitions that I, I, I've just talked about, which is to expose a piece of reality that, that the left were reluctant to, to talk about. I mean, we, you can imagine how much flack we took for this book from some quarters, you know, the, the cliches about giving people the oxygen of publicity, concepts like normalization from the, the French philosopher, Michel Foucault, of course, that you can't normalize this discourse. But to us, it was an aspect of real reality that needed to be explained. So um, we had um, a huge uh, backlog of, of, of contacts who we'd um, met during our uh, ethnographic research from the past. And we used that backlog of, uh, of research contacts to get us in touch with, um, to put us in touch with um, members of the, well, you, you can't use the term members because it's not a, a you know, it is, it's not, it's not a club and it, it has no constitution. And there's people involved in the, the, the street protests. And we found um, straight away that, that um, behind these individuals who are involved in street protests is an awful lot of silent support for this, what, some people regard as a far-right um, worldview. And uh, this, we think, tells us an awful lot about today's politics, about the aban abandonment of working-class communities by the uh, metropolitan liberal left, about betrayal um, of the Labour Party. And we thought that um, this book would expose an aspect of reality that could um, tell us an awful lot about today's politics. The findings, I mean, I don't know how much detail you want me to go with it because there are a huge number of findings. I mean, there is, is there something you want to point towards that, that you want me to well, Actually, Steve, if I could just jump in, this is Alex. I wanted to ask uh, yeah. in that ethnographic research whether you found that or to what extent did associates of the English Defence League or people who were sympathetic to that kind of far-right English nationalism, did, how much contact had they had with the left in any organized form, whether it's the Labour Party or, you know, even trade unions, uh, are these people who have grown up without any contact, particularly with 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 the Labour Party or uh, or are there people who have left it? I mean, especially in terms of, I guess I'm thinking yeah. more in terms of younger activists. Uh, what is their political history to the extent that they might have any? Yeah, well, many did. Um, some were, were quite um, nihilistic and, and detached from, from politics. Uh, some, uh, a small number, were classic working class Tories of the, of the, the sort that Frank Parkin investigated in the 1960s. Uh, but the majority, we found, were from, from Labour voting families, Labour voting communities, and had close relations involved in trade unions. So they had drifted from the Labour Party um, to the right. Uh, they didn't see themselves drifting right. They just saw themselves as making protests about being abandoned by, um, mm. abandoned by the, the economy, abandoned by politics, and abandoned by the Labour Party and the left. Now, I, I find that fascinating because the usual sort of casual dismissal of the EDL when people aren't trying to talk them up as a as a civilizational threat uh, is to kind of pigeonhole them as diehard racists who have never had any contact with the left. I mean, I guess that's where my question was leading, which is precisely that they, they did have some contact with the left and that in some sense it is a failure of the left to incorporate their interests or demands or aspirations, uh, that it wasn't that these aren't just diehard died in the wool racists and reactionaries who would never be capable to be would never be open to be to be won over by by left wing forces. No, we, we found that a good few um, 
expressed the willingness to be won over. I remember talking to one chap who who um, who expressed, you know, who said that he would vote for Corbyn if, if he could understand Corbyn's economic policies, uh, which at the time John McDonnell was being rather vague about. Um, so, no, there's no, uh, you know, uh, there's no... Um, it's, they, they were a mixed bag. Uh, there were some racists, don't get me wrong. There was some quite um, horrific racism from a minority, but it's a nuanced racism. It's not, they're not a continuation of the anti-Semitic far right of the 1930s, or even indeed the um, anti-Afro-Caribbean and anti-Asian far right, the National Front, etc., of the 1960s. This is not a simple continuation. This is a, 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 a rise of populism from the ground up, um, the, the risen up to protest against abandonment, and, and they contain an awful lot of different people with different views. We found um, most of them were pro-Zionist, for instance, which is very different to the far right huh. of the 1930s. Um, we found uh, an awful lot um, who had respect for immigrants uh, who said that, you know, if we were in the same situation, we'd do the same ourselves. We had an awful lot of people who, who um, the main um, antagonists uh, were, were um, Eastern European Im- immigrants from outside of the Eurozone, who they're complaining about them undercutting prices for building work and, uh, and, uh, and this sort of thing. So it wasn't that this easy to understand this simple racism that, that, that we encountered in the 30s and the 60s and the 70s. This is something different. And, and that's why we thought it needed to be researched. And so I wanted to pick up on a couple of those points, because one thing that did strike me reading the reading the book was, like you say, um, that they would, or at least you might talk about respondents in the research, you say they've got nothing with uh, Jews or black people. They know black people, Jews have assimilated, they're friendly with black people, but that they were, um, it was Muslims and Islamism in particular that, that um, drew their ire. And also the other thing that struck me was that they didn't identify as British in what you said. They um, didn't identify with the British National Party, the old far right um, kind of neo-Nazi party, but identified specifically as English. Could you talk a bit more about that as well? Yeah, they, they were isolationists and um, protectionists. They, 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 they wanted their industry to be protected in the 1980s. They were they, they were very, very sad about demise of their communities, about the demise of steady work in industry, the work they'd seen their fathers and mothers doing, the work that some of the older ones had experienced themselves. And their, their fundamental um, aim, what was driving them, seemed to be protection, the protection of an isolationist national group that they saw themselves very much as English. They saw uh, they didn't have much in common with the Irish Scots no one mentioned Welsh, as, as I'd imagine they see Wales as, as, as very much part of, 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 the, of the England and Wales um, uh, duo. So <clears throat> they were very much, they were about, Eng- about England, they were about them they're, they're protecting their jobs, protecting their communities, and hopefully reviving their communities. If politicians, they said, could... Gave, give them some clear indications that they had plans for reviving their communities, bringing back secure jobs, then they would vote for anyone who would do that. So they weren't committed to any particular political ideology. Uh, and, and to simply label them fascist or far right, I think is very lazy and a very easy way out of it. So one thing you've mentioned, which really fascinated me, and you've um, you mentioned it in the book, and you've mentioned it um, thus thus far, is this idea of abandonment. That the thing that really um, the thing that really motivated the people you spoke to and engaged with was the idea that they're abandoned by political authority, abandoned by the establishment. And I read that effectively to mean that they were abandoned to the vagaries of the market. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about um, how I mean. How did you understand the concept of abandonment? Was it uh, psycho in uh, psychoanalytic terms and what that might mean? And if you could just uh, explain it a bit more. Yeah, I, I think it was beyond abandonment. I think that the, the, the concept we pr- pr- preferred to use in, in, in the book was betrayal. Um, I think betrayal cuts deeper than, than simply being abandoned. 
Um, if you know, if if someone is abandoned, then there's always a chance of of, of you know repairing that relationship. But when you're betrayed, um, certainly psychoanalytically, that creates a huge lot of libidinal investment um, in an alternative, in, in, in an object, and sometimes a hostile reaction that creates a reaction formation, as Freud would have said. And betrayal is wholly is 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 the worst thing. Very much to feel betrayed is like being betrayed by a parent. It's a betrayal of trust. Someone, or you put your trust in, like a parent. There's this sort of the Labour Party as as a, you know a paternal institution, something that had promised to look after them, and it had abandoned them, but also betrayed them. So betrayal, I think, is the concept we prefer. And how does that? How does that link to the idea of authority then, which you mentioned before? So the fact that, um, as you put it, over the since the end of the Second World War period, the left has defined itself. And I mean, you you were discussing this in relation to criminolo- to criminologists, but I I think it applies more widely on the left that the left has defined itself in opposition to authority. And if it's the left is defined by its suspicion of authority, how does that link to the idea of um, a working class that feels abandoned and betrayed by authority? Yeah, I think very much so. I don't think working class have the fear of authority that the liberal middle class do. Um, I think we, you know, what is authority? Let, let's make her, Hannah Arendt's distinction between power and authority. Power is something that can be imposed on individuals or communities. Um, but authority is based on the, in the term to authorize. You authorize in a sort of Hobbesian sense. You give up some of your freedom. You say, here, look, you're an authority. You, do, you, 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 you govern. You, you look after this territory and you make sure that we are okay. So the working class, authority isn't, isn't a, 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 a something to be terrified of. Whereas for the liberal middle class, an authority is something horrific. It, 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 it's something that is, in their term, authoritarian, and something that's totalitarian and possible and, and quite brutal too. So they don't have a, you know, they want an authority. They, they, they want, a, you know, Slav, the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek said, uh, that, you know, the state can come back and start looking after things again. They, 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 they would be fine about that, as, of course, um, the Attlee uh, government did after the Second World War. They'd be fine with that sort of central authority running things as long as their jobs were secure and they had some sort of hope for the future of their children. Is that fear of authority amongst the liberal middle class a reflection of uh, maybe a deeper rooted individualism amongst liberal middle classes, something that maybe is less present in in the working class and hence uh, the use of legitimate authority is not something to be afraid of? Yes, I think so. I think uh, I'll draw upon G.K. Chesterton when he said that it was uh, when he was um, talking about anarchism and he said that really the poor have never been invested in the notion of anarchism and the notion of a leaderless, non-hierarchical society. They're quite happy to take their uh, place in a hierarchy as long as that hierarchy is, is working for their benefit. Um, and, and, of course, it was always the rich who wanted to be anarchists. Anarchism is an aristocratic um, notion. As, you know, the anarchists were syphilitic Russian princes and... and, and <laughs> Well, it's funny, just today I read someone referring to to anarchism as as the poor man's libertarianism, literally. (laughs) Well, yes, no, I I would agree with that. And, and, you know, it was always the rich who wanted to be free. The rich who wanted to to rise above all authority, rise above all social norms and just do what on earth they wanted. Um, And I I call this, uh, the bourgeoisie, of course, have always been aristophiles. Um, gentrification, of course, is, is a move towards aristocracy. So I think that the middle class have always had this sneaking liking for aristocracy, wanting to be in their shoes. So then getting rid of authority gives them the freedom to play in sec- sectors of the market to get as rich as possible and to move up the ladder in, onto this, this ledge of freedom where their social responsibilities can be abandoned. I mean, you know, we hear stories now, don't we, of some of the mega-rich 
global entrepreneurs buying bays in New Zealand, you know, and, and, and wanting to just, uh, Branson's Island, is it somewhere in, in, in the Caribbean, isn't it? <laughs> um, or near the Caribbean. Yeah, he, they want to abandon society. In, in Paul Virilio's sense, you know, they find it claustropolis. It, 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 it's claustrophobic and they simply want to escape um, uh, all, all uh, social responsibility. I suppose the movie Elysium was a sort of crude yeah. um, expression of that. Of that um, or, or indeed, a lot of a lot of the work of, of JG Ballard, for that matter, is one of my favorites. Oh, Ballard, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Terminal Beach. Yes, this, this is uh, you know this is a com- common theme in, in in science fiction. This this idea of escaping, and I think they're the ones who are frightened of authority, uh, and. Um, because I think authority would clip their wings. It, you know, it, it taxes them and, uh, and, and it, it, it uh, asks them to have social responsibility and uh, asks them to do all sorts of things they don't really want to do. Hey, it's Alex. I'm just interrupting to let you know about our first live event. Bunga Live is coming your way. If you're in the greater London area on the 21st of March, get down to Queen Mary University. We'll be there to be discussing the future of Europe, internationalism or transnationalism. The debate is as follows. Do we need to remain and reform? Or do European left parties need to push for exit in their own countries? How do we realize internationalism today? Is it through European institutions, even if they're reformed ones? Or do we need unilateral exit? Very, very pleased to have joining us for this, three brilliant past Alpha Bunga Bunga guests. We've got David Adler flying in from Athens. He does policy for Yanis Varoufakis' European Spring. We have flying in from Portugal, activist Katerina Principi, and we have international relations scholar Lee Jones in London. Please sign up at bungacast.eventbrite.com. That's bungacast.eventbrite.com. We'll also be live streaming the event, holding a live Q&A, but of course it'd be great to meet you in person. So if you're in the Greater London area, 21st of March, Queen Mary University, it's Bunga Live. While I'm here, I just need to drop in another little reminder of our Patreon. We've been running out of our own pockets for ages, so could use a little help to keep going. It's patreon.com slash bungacast. And the website for the event, once again, is bungacast.eventbrite.com. All the information is available on our website, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right, now back to our chat with Steve Hall. So reading, um, kind of shifting back to um, the crime and deviance literature, I was reading your book on theorizing crime and deviance, a new perspective. And one thing that really stuck out for me, having, I mean, I studied sociology as an undergraduate, and I imagine some of our listeners did as well. And one thing that really stuck out is that you take aim at Stanley Cohen, and the notion of a moral panic. And Stanley uh, Cohen, he'll, he'll be familiar to anyone who studied sociology, I think. Um, but just for the benefit of those who might not have, he was a renowned mid-20th, mid-20th century sociologist. He does the famous study of adolescent and youth subcultures, the English mods and rockers, and talks about the reaction of the middle-class culture to them in 1950s Britain. And he calls talks about this as the moral panic. And he writes the book, Folk Devils and Moral Panic, and it becomes the touchstone for analyzing all these dynamics of moral outrage. And so to me, I mean, this is the way it was sold to me when I was an undergraduate, and I very much absorbed it, I have to say. And even today, it still seems to me to be very powerful. The idea that um, it's an inescapable way of thinking about modern society. You know, you've got panics about immigrants, panics about terrorists, panics about pedophiles. Um, You know, the list is endless. But in your book, you said we have to junk the concept of moral panic. We have to get past Stanley Cohen. And I really, um, I was completely fascinated by this. And I was wondering if you could explain why you make the case and how you justify it. Well, yeah, I mean, a number of reasons. I mean, I'm going to have to condense things for this interview. But simply because, well, firstly, I had never seen the population of England in a panic. I mean, <laughs> we, you know, I, I wish... <laughs> I wish that that day might come one day where they do get really seriously worked about things. But when when you see the panic in the papers, you see it in the media, but whether that actually transfers to the public is is a different matter. And when you read the Daily Mail sounding off about this, that, and you might might get a few off-the-cuff remarks about it in the pub, but people just carry on in their, their ordinary lives. 
Um, there was a very good study, I can't remember, I think it might have been Lazarsfeld, I don't know, 50s or 60s, about audience participation in the media, where they were putting all of this sensational stuff on the television, and they were they filmed people on the couch, you know, and they weren't taking any notes of it. I once asked my father in why he buys the sun. He said, well, you get the television papers in, in the type that he can read because his eyesight was failing and he likes the sports reporting. Uh, whether the audience, you know, whenever, whenever the papers are saying something the liberals don't like, they wheel out the hypodermic model. And then when they're saying something they do like, they say, oh, well, well this is the audience wants This is agency. It's all about agency. So they sort of oscillate between agency and the hypodermic effect perspective as it suits them. But the reason to get rid of the more panic, I think, is a more technical one, uh, which started, uh, you know, we, we, we got this, the idea from our studies in criminology. Um, moral panic. Well, the media do sensationalize. You can't deny that. They, they raise concerns in a sensational way to attract attention. That's how they sell their papers. They exaggerate the problems to capture, so the audience, you know, to capture the attention of the audience. But the, the bit that Cohen and all the moral panic theorists miss is that they also constantly exaggerate the ability of the existing authority to cope with that. So at the end of the Morse um, uh, story, the crime is solved. At the end of Crime Watch, it says, don't worry about this. The police are in control. Sleep easy in your beds. Whether the police are in control or not depends on the situation, depends on what's going on. They certainly weren't in control after the Tottenham riots in 2011. So the media exaggerates the state's ability to deal with these problems without a shift towards authoritarianism. Because don't forget, that's conservatives or neoliberals. They don't want state authority. It's too expensive. They want to cut the police back. They want to cut the prisons. And they want to cut out as much as they possibly can. So Stuart Hall's notion of authoritarian populism is a complete misreading of the situation too. Cohen's notion of moral panic. There's no moral panic. What it produces is complacency. What governing body in its right mind would want to produce panic. It wants to produce concern, but it also wants to, pr to project itself as the solution to that concern. So it doesn't want panic at all. It wants concern. And it, it wants um, the, the population to believe that they can solve the problem. I guess so at the what, argument... Not, sorry, sorry just, go ahead, George. George here. So, so what's, what's a good alternative uh, concept? Because I think moral panic's got a, a, a lot of currency. Is it kind of manufactured managed concern managed concern is quite good but i prefer to go a little deeper than that i call it objectless anxiety mm. now we know that the distinction between fear and anxiety fear has an object now anxiety of course has no object it's that feeling that something's going on um but we don't quite know what it is um, fear is actually a healthier, healthier, much healthier condition than anxiety, to be afraid of something. But objectless anxiety creates a space, a void into which any ideology can flow. But to create a, you know, a condition of objectless anxiety, you don't show people what they need to be afraid about. Mm. That defeats the whole object of, of, the, of, of, of the exercise if you show people, be afraid of crime, be afraid of terrorism, be afraid of immigrants, you don't show the objects, you just create this underlying objectless anxiety into which any ideology can flow. So <clears throat> the concept simply doesn't work for me, and I think it would be much um, better if we cr construct another idea based on the principle of objectless anxiety. I like managed concern. I might just steal that. I write that down, actually. Just before you copyright it. Uh, you know, managed complacency, I don't know. Yeah, we'd have to think these concepts through. But we need new concepts. Now, there's mm. no, no point in, in um, hanging on to concepts that were constructed in a different era. So it seems that if I'm following your argument correctly, Steve, is that this object objectless anxiety is more of a, f a more favorable situation for the people to be in from the perspective of those in charge, from the perspective of the elite, right? But uh, my understanding is that, I mean, under neoliberalism, you have authority, you have a kind of, um, 
you have, you have an authority which doesn't which doesn't want to recognize itself, which wants to keep uh, everything sort of ticking over without ever actually having to undertake any projects of any sort, right? I mean, I think that's what kind of neoliberal, uh, kind of an important feature of neoliberalism is. So how do how do yes. those two things fit together? I mean, I guess is your argument that a moral panic would then lead to you know, it has a, it, it's an object full fear. It's a, it's a fear of a definite thing, which then would demand that authorities, that political authorities uh, respond to and resolve these issues. Whereas neoliberalism works by having people be generally anxious without any real object uh, to take hold of. That's right. And, and, and yes. And it, it, if people persuade the um, authorities that they need to do something, that's going to cost more. Mm-hmm. And the state will have to expand and um, neoliberals like to promulgate the ideology of money scarcity, saying, oh, we haven't got the taxes to pay for it, even though as a follower of modern monetary theory, I know that taxes don't pay for um, deficit spending and uh, fiscal spending state. Uh, you know, the government can spend without, without calling in taxes. But mm. it needs to spend first before you call in taxes. So it doesn't, the government doesn't want to spend anyone. It's been cutting the police over the past four or five years. It doesn't want this extra expense, and it doesn't want to expand its institutional base at all. It wants to shrink its institutional base. It wants to privatize. So why it would cause a panic, which would, which would elicit from the population a demand to expand what it wants to cut, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'd like to get on to mon- modern monetary theory, but we're not going to do that in this episode. We'll have to do no, a whole separate episode on that. Um, I did want to no, move on I'll to... Look forward to that. <laughs> um, but I wanted to move on to something else, which is a notion that you use called special liberty, uh, which to me sounds, uh, to my uneducated mind, sounds like the sort of freedom people give themselves to do bad things, to be assholes. Uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, like liberal criticism, I guess we'd call left liberal criticism today, takes aim at entitlement. So mostly yeah. focused around race or gender. Uh, so how does special yeah. liberty relate to that? Have I understood the concept? Are they the same thing or is there something different going on? No, something different going on. As, as usual, the liberal left missed the target by a considerable distance. Um, I, I'm sorry to say that, you know, I think, you know, I, I'm a a revisionist in the sense that we need we need new concepts um okay entitlement is structured it's structured in class race gender um it's structured around um history it's structured around politics political institutions and hierarchical power in those institutions special liberty is entirely unstructured anyone can have this feeling i remember an interview by Colin Wilson. You've probably forgotten Colin Wilson. You know, who called the outsiders in the 1950s and then disappeared into some weird occult studies and, mm-hmm. and, and lost the public's faith. But he interviewed Ian Brady. Now, Brady was a victim of abuse by a, a, um, a foster parent, I think. And Brady, when he was 11 year old, walked up on, on the, the top of a hill in Scotland, surveyed the land. He said, This is my land. I'm going to do exactly what I want here. So, this is this sort of aristocratic anarchist rather than this structured sense of, of entitlement. It's a sense of total entitlement, completely anarchic, with any of the, without any of the structures that we see entitlement uh, wrapped up into. Also, it's, in, it, it's anarchic. It's not institutionalized. Entitlement is, is certainly institutionalized. It's not socialized. Entitlement is socialized. Um, middle class, upper middle class, uh, upper class people are taught to feel entitlement. Uh, special liberty is a drive from the id. It, it, it's, it, it's this, uh, you know, it, it's simply the inst- instincts letting in the Nietzschean sense, of course, although, of course, Nietzsche was a fake, of course. He wanted, he wanted us to sublimate that and, and, and express it in art. Uh, I'd probably upset a Nietzsche fan there, but I mean, that's what I'm here for. That's why you invite me on. But it's, uh, <laughs> we don't have any Nietzsche fans. I'm not, I'm not sure how many Nietzsche fans we got, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I've got an upset someone again. Now, this is an id-driven urge. It's nothing to do with social. You don't have to be taught special liberty. You simply just have to let it do its work. Um, also, uh, Tatman ca- carries some degree of responsibility with it. And I think we have to agree with the conservatives, the traditional conservatives here, that the entitlement 
of the landed gentry and timeman of the aristocracy, the House of Lords carries a degree of responsibility, whereas special liberty carries no responsibility whatsoever. Responsibility for consequences, look at it, consequential. So it's, it's not intrinsic in the sense it's not driven by any moral, uh, you know, Kantian. Uh, morality, pre-existing morality, but but it, and in the consequential sense, it, it, it you know it, it, it doesn't exist. And it's also entitlement is conditional, always conditional. It has limits. Um, even John Stuart Mill, the famous essay on on liberty, said you know there are limits to freedom, there are boundaries. Uh, whereas special liberty doesn't really know these boundaries. So special liberty is a different beast altogether. Have I persuaded you yet or do you want me to go on? Can you give us an example of uh, special liberty that kind of illustrates the concept? Yeah, I think that um, a, a criminal I used to I, I, <laughs> I chose the wrong word. I, I, I chose a word for, um, I chose a word that was um, coined by Werner Sumbart uh, um, who talked about the capitalist undertaker. Of course, everyone thinks of um, Thomas and Burris the Dead, mm -hmm. but the capitalist undertaker is someone who undertakes to go as far as necessary um, in it's, order it's to the get... It's the entrepreneur, right? Faster. Yeah, it's the entrepreneur without limits. And you, you can look at <laughs> the, you know, the Camara or the Mafia for... Uh, people, uh, you know, dozens of people who are willing to just go beyond the limit to make sure that that the job is done. Well, I mean, that's a, that obviously is a nice opportunity for me to give a shout out to our series on the uber mention of capital, which starts off with a discussion precisely on uh, the role of the entrepreneur today, the the sort of. Uh, this sort of special figure who who actually allows himself this special liberty to to break norms and break rules to do what's needed. Yeah. Um, that's quite a nice way. I, I wanted to actually ask just on special liberty: is this something which would only apply to to individuals, or or do would collectivities uh, endow themselves with special liberty or allow themselves special liberty? I think uh, once it's uh, once it becomes collectivized and institutionalized, it becomes entitlement. I think that special liberty is, is, an, is an individualized, um, anarchic drive towards um, that the individual um, invokes in order to rise above all norms and, 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 and transgress all boundaries simply to, to perform some sort of task. Institutions can do the same, but then I think it's... It, it becomes, uh, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought this through. Is, is it special liberty when Volkswagen fiddle the figures on their diesel emissions? Mm. Is that entitlement? Um, it, there's something else there. So I think there's probably looking at a third concept which, which um, I would need to formulate. But interesting um, direction to take it in, I think, yeah. So in, in your work, you, you also talk about a, a related concept, which I think is, you know, again, part of the, the context in which in which crime potentially occurs. And this is one of deaptation. And correct me if I'm yeah. pronouncing that wrong. And this is, yeah. I guess, in, in the context of this special liberty, there's also a continuing commitment to an ideology that's become obsolete or or dysfunctional. So, yeah. I mean, with one of the things we're interested in the podcast is is i guess some of these these political these um wider political contexts so how do, how does this fit in here well I, um <clears throat> i stole the adaptation i mean the other concepts are uh, original coinings but but uh, adaptation belongs to the um lacanian philosopher adrian johnson american and his uh, transcendental materialist position um, transcendental materials are a bit tricky, but deaptation is a part of that. As you describe it, it, it it's simply hanging on to um, an, an ideology that has become obsolete because the underlying conditions have changed. And even if an ideology, say Protestantism, say early capitalism, even if that ideology sort of saws through um, early modernity into high modernity, cause a lot of problems, but also enriched us and, and and you know there a lot of you know even marx would have admitted that a lot of good things happened um that that ideology was functional or at least semi-functional i'm saying it was moral or that it was ideal but it was semi-functional um but now 
Uh, we face global warming. We face all of these huge constant um, underemployment, unemployment, automation, etc. It's an ideology that's passed its sell-by date, yet it still keeps reproducing itself. And as it reproduces itself, it causes all, it causes all sorts of consequential harms. So we, we've talked in, in the podcast previously about uh, knobs or neoliberal order breakdown syndrome and the way in which the i guess you could call them the the liberal intellectual class have um performed their continuing uh, commitment to to um to i guess neoliberalism as an ideology how do, how does um how does i guess deaptation fit in with with the criminological perspective rather than just at the um ideological level well um for johnson of course uh, these ideologies create subjects Johnson uses the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek's reformulation of, of, of Descartes, this idea that there is a subject in there, but it's a void. It's a void of conflicting, confusing drives that need to be um, firmed up by ideology to give the subject any sense of itself and its place in the world. So subjects... Um, one of the tenets of ultra-realism, uh, as it's drawn from critical realism, where Roy Basker's critical realism, where there's three levels of, uh, of uh, the social world, where the empirical, actual, and the real, the real being the structures and processes. We put the subject under this. So for us, there's a fourth layer, and that distinguishes ultra-realism from critical realism. There's a fourth layer of the agent fetishly, fetishistically dis disavowing his or her um, role in reproducing um, neoliberal capitalism. So that subject every day um, is involved in keeping the system going, at work as a consumer, as an administrator, but fet fetishistically disavows this and, and tries to put this sort of moral um, uh, construct, this sort of moral armour around the self in, in order to, to avoid the you know, knowing exactly what the, to avoid the consequences of their actions. So um, the subject of uh, the de of ideology is hyperactive. And um, we are all its subjects in one way or another. It's very difficult to escape it unless you want to become a total recluse and live in a cave somewhere. So can you give an example of um, how we... How we uh disavow our responsibility for contemporary society along the model that you described? What might be an example of that? Well, you know, the classic examples, probably the most important examples today are, are, are transport and energy, that we're using so much energy and we're using diesel cars, we're using petrol cars and, and, and we're relying on coal-fired power stations and we're destroying the environment. We're heating up the globe. But we just deny this every time we jump in the car and every time we turn on the kettle. Oh, well, the authorities must do something about it. And because we feel hopeless, we construct this fantasized authority. They, they'll do something about it one day. But it doesn't look like they will because what have we also done? We've destroyed that authority. From the post-68 generation has destroyed the they that we expect to put this right. So we leave ourselves, and again, this, 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 this fosters this condition of objectless anxiety. We know there's something wrong. We don't want to do anything about it because it's not up to us. We know that authority's missing. We don't, I would say that maybe the millennial generation and the generation coming now have really no, ex, no real experience of any authority other than the market. They don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, I think that's. I mean, I think judging by uh, judging by interacting with um, with students, <laughs> I think that's probably yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't know it, and they don't know. Therefore, they don't know whether it's good or bad, whether whether it's embracing or hostile. They don't know really anything about it. And whereas old geezers like me have lived with a partial authority, let's say, after the social democracy was a partial authority and it ran with the market, but it, through, you know, numerous Keynesian means, capital exchange controls, et cetera, et cetera, it, it regulated and controlled the market. It was a, you know, we didn't have a political authority, not a very strong one or effective one, but we didn't have one. So, you know, I had some experience of living under a political authority. And let me say that it was quite... Uh, um, 
it was quite a good experience. It was um, it was quite secure. I felt quite secure in the 60s and 70s, whereas I think myself and an awful lot of other people feel today feel quite insecure. This is really interesting, I find, because it's, well, this whole chat, I'm, I'm loving it, actually, because it's touched on so many of the themes that we concern ourselves regularly uh, at Alpha Bunga Bunga. I mean, I say this probably all, all four of us individually. Uh, I, and I wanted to re- kind of return to this notion of, of what you what you've, you refer to as uh, fetishistic disavowal, which I think, yeah, which is Zizek's notion, uh, which also operates at, at the sort of level of ideology that people... And sort of disavow being ideological. We know we're post-ideological. I'm just sort of look at the world as it is. Yes. I'm, I'm empirical. I'm not driven by ideology, neither left nor right. You know, I'm, I'm just common sense or pragmatic or however uh, people wish to term it. Um, and of course, in doing so, they, they, of course, prove that they are entirely wedded to an ideology. And it is, you know, this sort of ideology of, of post-ideology in, in some ways. Uh, and of course, what ends up filling the gap, I guess, is neoliberalism, even if they don't those people who disavow ideology don't wish to term it that. Uh, they're completely wedded to the world as it is now, uh, which relates to something which, uh, which, which you've written about, or even, which is the notion of, of the end of history, uh, which is yeah. precisely the period in which we, we disavow ideology, which we, don't, which we believe we're not held under its sway, which means that we're only, only come even more so under its sway. Uh, and and so there's this notion of, of of absence, right? That we have an absence of ideology, an absence of an sense of history, an absence of a sense of where we're going or people to lead us there. Uh, things just sort of happen, and it leaves us in an anxious state. So you yeah. mentioned in a in an interview you've given uh, on on ultra realist criminology that absences can be causative. That it's precisely the yeah. absence of these things that can lead us to actions and, and perhaps to problematic behaviors, uh, to, to dysfunctional or anomic ways of, of being. So can you maybe explain to this, explain us a little bit how absence can be causative, how the absence of something can lead to something? Yes. Well, to, to go back to, to the beginning of your question, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, we can... Neoliberalism is, is analogous to, to the devil, uh, in the sense that the devil's greatest trick was to convince us that he doesn't exist. And, and neoliberalism certainly has succeeded magnificently. As you say, we now talk about the economy. We don't talk about capitalism. We talk about the world. We don't talk about the capitalist world. So it's become um, common sense. I mean, you know, it's become hegemonic in the classic Gramscian sense that, 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 this, is, that this is just it. But the problem is that it, it, it's chronic anxiety is now being fueled by the insecurities uh, like um, global warming, underemployment, automation, uh, mass migration, uh, all of these huge structural forces and huge processes are now starting to impact on the actual levels and the empirical levels. The, the actual level in Basco's sense is, is a human experience and its consequences. So it's beginning to impact. One of the gilets jaunes poked his head in, in front of the microphone and said, why are we here? Because we can't get nothing. What he means is he can't get a job. There's nothing secure. He, want, he, wants, yeah. he wants some sort of security. He wants some sort of handle back on. Now, <clears throat> the history's restarting. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we can't control its, uh, its restart because we've abandoned authority. Um, we've abandoned firm political ideologies. Um, so it, it's it's becoming anarchic. And I think, again, to go back to G.K. Chesterton and some of his wonderful writings on history, he, he traced this at the end of the Roman Empire, where the Roman Empire um, was falling apart. Um, uh, Brian Ward per- Perkins' magnificent book on the, on, on the fall of the Roman Empire shows, I think, beyond doubt that the Roman order was better than, better than the anarchic dark ages that followed it in terms of violence. My studies of historical violence tend to confirm that too. And it simply, it, it, it fell into a dark age, an age of magic and mysticism, where no one knew what to do. There was no firm authority in what Jacques Lacan calls a symbolic order, a comprehensive symbolic order, sorry, a comprehensible symbolic order simply didn't exist. And it's very, very difficult to construct a a comprehensible symbolic order in times of tumult and chaos. And that's what we're we're looking at now, I think. So we've got 
there are two, there are a number of directions this could go, but the two most likely ones are into chaos, the chaos of a, of a, of a, of a new dark age, a techno dark age, or we see the return of some sort of political authority, some sort of firm political ideology and firm political subjectivity with a hope and a dream and a number of um, practical uh, technical suggestions about how to do it because as Freud said we can't simply dream on we have to reality test our dreams every now and again we say well look is this, this, is this vision taking us anywhere people are very very pragmatic and I was brought up in working class mining village they're very practical pragmatic people is this working will this work for us um, so we need to look at those two possible possible directions and make some sort of decision about which direction we want to go in uh, if, if, if at all. But the problem is going in direction two towards political authority requires the authority in the first place in order to do it. Do you see what I mean? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so we need to restart that very, very rapidly, very quickly. We need some firm ideas, firm economic ideas. Uh, particularly ideas about how to manage the economy, which, uh, you know, and I'm glad you're having a program about modern monetary theory because I think there's probably more mileage in that one than any of the others at the moment, although I don't think it's watertight, but, you know, it certainly is an interesting perspective. Uh, it's a description of the operational reality of fiat um, money economy, so I think it's very useful. So we need it. We, we need to do it very quickly. And so there's a sense of urgency now that didn't exist in the 60s and 70s. So, uh, liberals are always criticizing. We're always remonstrating. Is too much? You're too urgent. You want to get things. Well, we need, there's an urgency now. Otherwise, I think we're going to simply drift into this techno dark age, the dark, you know, wasn't it Nick Land years ago talking about the dark enlightenment and everything? Mm, yeah. Get down the rabbit hole, wasn't it? I think that that's a very strong possibility unless we can sort of preempt the political authority that will emerge as we do it. Well, I wanted to then take what you've just said and, and maybe uh, lead on to something that you're working on, which is a, a book called The Death of the Left. So could you yeah. tell us, give us a little bit of a preview on that? And also maybe if I could connect that to uh, the growth and membership of the Labour Party, uh, Corbyn being seen as the prime minister in waiting, uh, so-called left populists as France Insoumise in France or Sanders' chances in 2020 in the US. Uh, how do you see that? Do you see this as a re revival of the left? How, what's, your, what's your take on all this? No, no, I don't see it as a revival of the left. I see it as a... As a a partial revival of the liberalized left. And I think the liberalization of the left was the problem. So the book is basically uh, an analysis of the, um, the direction the left took throughout the 20th century from its early um, takeover of the Labour Party by the Fabians. And the Fabians uh, who wrote the script for the Labour Party, which failed in 1929, 1930 with Ramsay MacDonald and then came back in 1945 and how various forces from post-war forces um, combined to um, not to, to derail that social democratic project and turn it into essentially a left libertarian project. So we'll be looking at early feminism, we'll be looking at uh, the rise of identity politics in, in, in the early 1970s. We'll be looking at the Telcal group, the post-structuralist, post-modernist, Foucault, Pierre, Victor, and, and uh, Leotard, and the rest of them. Uh, we're looking at those philosophers who veered to the right Duxman and the Nouvelle philosophy, and how the right simply fragmented itself in the 1960s, 1970s, um, and how that was driven, I think, by fear and horror, the horror at what the left had done. Still, of course, Stalin, as a, the figure of Stalin lies at the bottom of all this and what he actually did do. And Khrushchev's secret speech in 1956 when he revealed the horrors and the horrors that he'd seen. And for someone, a war hero like Khrushchev had fought at Stalingrad to, to say something is horrific, then it must have been horrific. Mm. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a way, uh, we're going to explain how the left fragmented itself and how those fragmented um, particles could have could have um, quite easily reconvened, 
come together and converged again, but they didn't. They remained hostile and, and, and divisive. And now we see um, this um, pantomime of, of, of identity politics carried out on social media, um, which is, uh, I, I think, uh, a, a sad end for a beautiful dream. Um, but in the end, we're going, of course, all books like this, the death, uh, you have to say, don't you, at the end, you have to say, well, the king is dead, long live the king. So <laughs> what, 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 is the new, what is the new king? What will be the new master? Jacques Lacan, I said, I think very, you know, uh, uh, as um, insightful as he was ever, he warned them, didn't he? He warned Foucault and that idiot who jumped up and what was he, Guattari, the, the, the mm -hmm. uh, so-called psychiatrist who, who jumped up and threw something at him in, in a meeting. He said, you think you're going to change the world, but all you'll do is you'll find a new master. And they found a new master. And that market, the master, of course, was the neoliberal market. And they walked in there with blindly very, very stupid people. I'm sorry to say that. You know, you can edit that out if you want. <laughs> oh, no, that's staying in. That's staying in. That's staying in for sure. <laughs> so, okay, actually, well, Steve, that's... sorry, just just yeah. one, maybe one one sort of final question is, um, so the, the death of the left, that that can't be the note that we that we finished the, the episode on. There has to be a little bit of positivity um, yeah, there was the king the king uh, yeah but but where where where's 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 that coming from who's the new king well, a, good, or who, a good a good horror movie always ends in abject despair you know i mean you, you've got to and then you have to go, <laughs> not a good podcast then you, to, <laughs> then you have to go away and you have to go away and think well what would i have done what would i have done to get out of that shit you know what would i have done um so maybe a, a bit of despair. I, I'm very uh, attracted to the idea of, of um, what does Jean-Pierre Dupuis call it? Enlightened catastrophism. That we must, and this again is one of the motifs of ultra-realism, we must look at the worst things. We must look at these things. Look, look, this is awful. We can't allow underemployment, unemployment, global warming. We can't allow these things to continue. So we must look at them in the face and we must think to ourselves, how are we going to solve all of these problems? How are we, what, what sort of politics do we need for the future? So the, the end of the book will be a few tentative suggestions about the sort of economics and the sort of politics that will need to constitute themselves to avoid the slide into the techno dark age that uh, you know, presents itself as the other possibility. Excellent, doomly stuff to finish on. Thank you very much, Steve. We'll have to have you on to discuss to discuss that in full uh, when it's out. Steve, thanks very much again. Well, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>